0: Good morning, my name is Bob. Uh, This morning I have the privilege of reading certainly one of the best known verses from the Old Testament, Genesis 1, 1 through 4. When God began to create the heavens and the earth, the earth was without shape or form. It was dark over the deep sea and God's wind swept over the waters. God said, let there be light. And so light appeared. God saw how good the light was. God separated the light from the darkness. The word of the Lord.
1: Be to God. Hello, my name is Nicole Jolin. The New Testament reading is found in 1 John 1 1 through 4. We announce to you what existed from the beginning and what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, and what we have seen in our, in our hands handled about the word of life. The life was revealed, and we have seen and we testify and announce to you the eternal life that was with the Father and was revealed to us. We have seen and heard. We have also announced it to you so that you can have fellowship with us. Our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We are writing these things so our joy can be complete. The word of the Lord. Hello, my name is Ruth. If you're able, please stand for the gospel reading. Today is found in John 17, 20 through 23. I'm not praying only for them, but also for those who believe in me because of their word. I pray they will be one, Father. Just as you are in me and I am in you, I pray they will also be in us so that the world will believe that you sent me. I've given them the glory that you've given me so that they can be one just as we are one. I'm in them and you are in me. So that they will be made perfectly one. Then the world will know that you sent me and that you have loved them just as you have loved me. The Gospel of the Lord.
0: Please remain standing with me as we pray. Father God, the Creator of heaven and earth, you spoke into the darkness your light. You took what was formless and empty and shaped it and filled it. And we ask today that you do the same things for us in the places in our own lives where life feels dark or confusing or difficult, where we find ourselves hurting or confused. Would you bring the light of your life to us? In the places where our lives are formless and empty, would you shape us into the image of Jesus? Would you fill us with your spirits? By your word, would you do this today? In your name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. amen. Well, good morning, everyone. You may be seated. Happy tide. We're in the third Sunday of Easter celebrating 50 days that Christ is risen. He's risen indeed. We're, today we're beginning a new five-week series uh, through 1 John, a series that we're calling Learning Love. 1 John is a, a, a book in the latter part of the New Testament, and in the letter itself, actually it's not so much a letter as much as it is a sermon, the writer is unnamed but based on the language and the style and the themes that we find, It sounds a lot like the Gospel of John and the letters of 2nd and 3rd John. So the church has said, this is all written by the same person. John, either John the son of Zebedee, the early follower of Jesus, or maybe another John who was part of those early followers. And the later letters in 2nd and 3rd John, he's identified as the elder, probably a reference to his uh, function within the church, but maybe also a, a relationship to his age or maybe both. We find this early follower of Jesus named John overseeing this collection of house churches probably around the city of Ephesus in modern-day Turkey toward the end of the first century, maybe the beginning of the second century, and here's what his churches are facing. He's seeing and hearing what's going on in these house churches and realizing that there are some people who have deviated from the faith who've actually begun to think and believe things about Jesus that he would say are not true. They're following false teachers or false teachings, those that he'll call later on antichrists, and saying, hey, you're starting to actually believe things about Jesus that are not actually true. And these people have now left the church, and they've left awake wake in behind them. It's disturbed and disrupted the community. And so 1 John is a sermon that he's written to encourage those who've remained in the midst of all that's going on. And he begins it this way. We announce to you what existed from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have seen, and what our hands handled or what we have touched we announced this all about to you about the word of life, the life that was revealed, the life that we have seen, and that we now testify and announce to you the eternal life that was with the Father and was revealed to us. In the original language of the sermon, it actually opens with the line, what was from the beginning. It echoes that verse in Genesis chapter 1 that Bob just read for us. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And it echoes that brilliant and beautiful opening of John's gospel. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God and then that word became flesh. God became human and dwelt among us. And he says, What we, what we, the disciples, the apostles, the early followers of Jesus, what we, those who were with him, those who were there, what we heard from him, what we, we what we heard and what we saw with our eyes, and what our hands touched, we announced all of that to you. We told you. Everything we proclaim to you, the very word of life. John saying, Jesus was here, and we were there, and we told you everything about it. And it sounds to us kind of like, Oh, yeah, that's really nice, but John's coming out swinging, he's actually coming right out of the gate and not pulling any punches at all about the conflict in the church about the identity and mission of Jesus, what John deals with right away at the very beginning is the issue of authority in the middle of competing truth claims. What is actually true about Jesus? And who knows? Who are those that actually know what's true? Who gets to say? Who gets to say what's true about the word of life. Who, who gets to say what's true about Jesus? And John comes right out front and says, I know. John says, he knows. Why? Because he's an OG witness. He's like, I was there. I heard him. I saw him. I touched him. I know everything. What John's doing is he's appealing to what the church later calls apostolic authority. It's this sense that Jesus was revealed. He did come. He was incarnate. He lived a life. People witnessed it, and those witnesses preserved everything that they saw and everything that he said, and they faithfully passed it down from one generation to the next. John is coming out and saying that we, the apostles, are saying what's true, and what we are saying is authentic and accurate. Jesus was here, we were there, and we told you everything. This actually becomes the basis for what we consider to be the authority of the New Testament witness that all of the letters in the New Testament are going back to this idea that Jesus has been revealed that The truth about him has been preserved and has been passed on from one generation to the next through the canon of the New Testament. But here in John's communities, there are now new teachers. Some 60 or 70 or maybe 80 years after Jesus' death and resurrection, there are new teachers coming along and they're claiming new insights, new ideas. Hey, you've heard this, but we say to you something a little bit different. And when you listen to them in John's community, it seems to arise out of what they've already been told, but then actually begins to deviate from it. This is the real challenge sometimes with false teaching, is that it sounds true. It sounds Christian. And then when you listen a little bit closer And to actually start thinking through the implications of things and what that might actually be rooted in, you come to realize that the Jesus language is just a cloak for something else. That there's a different thought, there's a different idea, there's a different ideology, and Jesus has just sort of been layered on top of it. I've been reading uh, with my younger two kids. Well, Cor has been joining us as well. We're finishing our round through Lewis. C.S. Lewis, C.S. Lewis's *The Chronicles of Narnia*, and we're reading *The Last Battle* right now. And that last battle begins with uh, these two animals, an ape and a donkey, discovering a lion skin coming down the river. And then the ape convinces the donkey to put the lion skin on and pretend that he's Aslan, the Christ figure, in the midst of the story. And so here you have this donkey pretending to be Aslan and the ape saying all kinds of things that the the other characters in the story are like, well, that sounds true, but that's not true, and they're struggling and wrestling in the middle of it. And what we realize from John and C.S. Lewis and others is that not everything that claims to be Christian is Christian. Not everything that claims Jesus is actually something Jesus would claim. Not everything that uses his name actually uses his name rightly, I think what we're discovering a lot in our culture in the midst of some of the conversations around deconstruction is that a lot of what deconstruction, I think, is happening among faith communities is actually decloaking of things that are claiming to be Christian and really aren't. It's a decloaking of things realizing, oh, actually, that has nothing to do with Jesus, that has nothing to do with the gospel. We've just taken Christian scriptures and Christian language and Christian ideas and we've thrown it over the top of that. But when you peel the layer back, you realize that there's a different ideology that is undergirding all of those things. Some things actually need to be deconstructed. I think I spent most of my faith or most of my 20s in faith, deconstructing ideas that I had learned in the first few years of becoming a Christian. We didn't call it deconstruction back then. We called it a faith crisis (laughs) or some sort of, like, struggle. You know, like, I'm just struggling with, with this idea. But there are some things that you just realize, actually, that's not core to who Jesus is and not core to the gospel. But there's also a challenge in the middle of that because sometimes deconstruction amounts to just exchanging cloaks of taking a different thing and putting it over the top of Jesus or claiming, moving to some other ideology and then putting Jesus over the top of that and saying that this is actually Christian. This is the challenge that John's facing around false teaching. It's not unique to John. It's not unique to us. The church in every generation throughout time has faced the challenge of holding on to what is true about Jesus. In our world, we're suspicious of tradition. So anything that feels historic to us, we're like, yeah, they probably had that wrong 2,000 years ago. We know better. We get suspicious of those things. And we are averse to any claims to exclusivity any claims to exclusivism. And we're fascinated by whatever is new and novel, not just in fashion and healthcare and tech, but particularly, I think, in the arena of religion and spirituality. We're fascinated by new trends and new ideas. In our world, it's especially appealing to us to blend ideas, to actually take a little bit of this and a little bit of that and to kind of mix them together together To make Christianity and Jesus a little bit more palatable. To make Jesus more compatible with our cultural norms. Or to make Jesus and his ideas more compatible with uh, with the things that we actually want to be true. (laughs) The things that we have our own ideas about, our own desires, our own comforts. And begin to take Jesus and place him over the top of those things. We've done this in the past in the church with things like racism. Racism. And sexism and ethnocentrism, that we've taken things and said, oh, we're just going to take some of these scriptures and we're going to claim and put a Jesus covering over that only to realize when you pull back, you're like, wait, that's actually not what Jesus taught at all. That has nothing to do with the love of God revealed in Jesus. And so here John and the other New Testament writers claim that they actually know the truth. And they claim not only to have their facts right about Jesus, they're not simply saying, hey, Jesus, he's a Nazarene, his parents are Mary and Joe, and he was a good teacher, and he lived, and at some point he died, and it was really tragic. They're not just claiming to have their facts right. They're actually claiming to have the meaning or the significance of those facts right to actually understand what God was doing in and through Jesus, to understand who Jesus really is. You can get a picture of it here in John 1. He says, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have seen. Why does he say seen twice? It feels a little bit like redundant here, but we actually have two different verbs. He's saying what we have seen and what we have seen. The first verb is about physical sight. The second one is about insights. It's about perception. It's about understanding. Jesus or John claims to have witnessed and to have understood the significance of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. He's claiming to know who Jesus really is and what Jesus really did. To say that Jesus is the incarnate God. <laughs> that he's fully human and he's fully divine. And if you start to sort of say like, well, no, he wasn't really God or he wasn't really human, you've already drifted away from the truth about who Jesus is. He's saying Jesus lived a sinless life and he showed us and taught us the way to live. If we start to think that what Jesus taught is not actually the way to be human, then we started to drift away from the way and the truth of Jesus. And he says That Jesus' death accomplished the forgiveness of sin, reconciled us to God. And that the resurrection, Jesus not only lived and died, but he rose again, revealing that he's the Christ, he's the Messiah, he's the true king, the true savior of the world who will come again to resurrect us and to restore all of creation. John's saying this is the truth, not just the facts, but the significance of all that Jesus is. And to capture the very essence of Jesus, John uses one word three times in two short verses. He uses the word life. Seeing that Jesus is the word of life, the word who is life, the word who gives life. The life was revealed, the eternal life who was with God. He's saying the word himself, Jesus himself, is life. Jesus is the life-giving word, the word about Jesus, the gospel, that is life. Life came to life to give life to all life. It's a way of John just trying to say, I don't know how to put all of this into the word, into words, but the very one who is life, who gave life to all things, came to life, became human to give life to every single one of us. And for John, that's what's at stake in his sermon. The reason that he's so concerned about what's going on in his congregations is because it concerns life itself. For him, life is at stake. Full life here and now, and full life in the world to come. For John, to miss Jesus is to miss life. To miss Jesus is to miss life. And to misconstrue Jesus, to misconstrue the message about Jesus, to move away from Jesus in any way is actually to miss life. For God is life. God is life. Life is who he is. Life is what he offers. Life is what he gives. Jesus has come that we might participate in the divine life of God. It's why he came into the world, that we might actually participate in the very life of God. John says it this way in verse three, what we have seen and heard, we also announce to you. Why? Why are you announcing this to us, John? Why are you so concerned about this? So that you can have fellowship with us. For our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. John says the reason for the initial proclamation of the gospel, the reason that they told other people about Jesus at all, and the reason that he writes this sermon is for fellowship. Fellowship in the apostolic community of Christ followers and fellowship with the Father and the Son. He doesn't mention the Spirit here. That's probably because the controversy in the church that he's dealing with is about who Jesus is. That's what they're fighting about. Fellowship, of course, is not a common word, especially if you didn't grow up in church. In church, we like this word a lot. We have fellowship hour in the fellowship hall with our fellowship group. Right? Like we just, we're going to keep throwing that word out there. But sometimes, some of you can recognize this, uh, that what that amounts to is stale donuts and bad coffee in a, in a homogenous huddle of people standing around in a room like a junior high dance. Right, like the boys are on this side, the girls on this side, like everybody's in their own huddle with their, you know, Folgers or Maxwell House and day-old donuts going, do we talk to people? I don't know. When does service start? How long do we have to stay? Can we go now? And so sometimes when we hear the word fellowship, we just have these negative tastes in our mouth. With the Greek word, the underlying word here that he uses is a word called koinonia. It means close, intimate, personal, communion. The word, it it recognizes a participation in a common life together. It's what I think the writer Wendell Berry in his Port William novels calls membership. It's lives that are inextricably joined together. The goal that he's putting before us is that we might be members of one another and members with the triune God. See, the goal of the gospel is actually participation in the very life of God. That's the goal of the gospel, is that we might participate in the very life of God. The goal is intimate communion. It's sharing in the common life of God and his people. And you might be sitting here going, wait a minute, wait a minute. No, the goal of the gospel, the goal is Forgiveness. Yes, but why are we forgiven? (laughs) What are we forgiven for? We're forgiven that we might be reconciled to God and to one another. The forgiveness is not an end in itself. The forgiveness is actually meant to say, come and be reconciled to God, be restored to his people, be set free from everything that you've experienced that you might participate in the very life of God." We're like no well, like, no, no, no. The, goal, the goal of the gospel is salvation. The goal of the gospel is just to not go to hell. Like, that's the whole goal. No, that's not the whole goal. The goal is that God wants to be with us. He wants to actually have eternal, unbroken, intimate relationship with each one of us and us with one another. That he's inviting us into full participation in life. This is actually what Jesus prayed for in John 17. I pray that they will be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, I pray they will also be in us, that they would be one with one another and one with us. That there would be a unity, an intimate fellowship with God And with others. This is why, for John, it's so critical for him to come into this moment and to encourage those who have stayed in the church to remain faithful to Jesus. Because Jesus is the word of life, Jesus is the word who gives life. And to break from the gospel, to break from Jesus, is to actually break from communion with God and his people. This is what's at stake for John. It's like the very participation in the life of God is at stake because participation in the divine life of God is made possible only with and through Jesus. He's the only one that can bring us into fellowship with God and with one another. This is what's at stake for John. It's only possible through Jesus. And John then goes on at the very end of this opening section and he talks about one of the common characteristics of this life, and he says that one of the common characteristics of this life with God and with His people is joy. For John, fellowship, koinonia, this intimate communion with God with others is where true joy is found. He says this. He says we are writing these things to you, so that our joy may be complete. Our joy, your joy, my joy. The community's joy might be complete, it might be whole, it might be full. How? As we join in the joyous life of God together. He's saying that God, the giver of life, has joy for us. And then he invites us into a reciprocal relationship, a mutual sharing with one another in with, and with him. And inside of this common life, there is Joy. <laughs> Complete joy, true joy, total joy, whole joy is found in our common life with God and with one another. That's actually where true joy is found. The kind of buoyant and bountiful joy that we are all desperately seeking in our lives. The joy that can be sustained. The joy that sustains us. The joy that can be shared the joy that can be received. John says that kind of joy is not found in the circumstances of our lives, but in our communion with Christ and his people. That's actually where that kind of joy is found. It's found in communion with Jesus and in communion with one another. It's actually birthed and grows in our participation with God and each other participation in the divine and eternal love of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit that we all get caught up in together and find that there's complete joy in this kind of fellowship. And the rest of the sermon, John talks about how. He begins talking about how is it that we participate in the divine life. But that's the next couple weeks. (laughs) Today, as we get ready to come to the table, as Evan comes and as Micah and the worship team come, I want to leave us with just a couple questions to pray through as we come to the table. Are you experiencing joy in your life? When you think about life and life right now in every season, and I'm not talking about everything going well, that there's not grief and sorrow and difficulty and all of those kinds of things. For the Christian, joy can exist alongside of those because joy is a fruit of the Spirit. It's evidence of the presence of the Spirit in our lives in the midst of all of the troubles that we face. But are you experiencing joy? If so, where have you found it? And if not, where are you looking for it? Where are you looking for joy? What are you participating in? What kind of life, what kind of fellowship are you participating in in order to find joy. And what makes you believe that joy can be found there? For so many of us, sometimes we look for joy in all of the wrong places. But we have to ask ourselves, is that belief, that we can find joy in this, that, or the other thing, is that belief actually rooted in Jesus? Is it rooted in the word who can give us life? This is who Jesus is. Jesus himself is always offering all of himself to us. Jesus is always inviting us to to participate in the very life of God. And so as we come to the table, where are you hearing his invitation to you? How is his invitation to life and to participation in his life coming to you in this season? How is he inviting you? The deeper delight in him and deeper delight in his church and his people. What does that common life look like? The common life with God and the common life of others. It's only possible in and through Jesus, the one who gives his very life to us. And as a reminder of that gift, he's given us the sacraments of communion.
2: as we come to this table again to celebrate, this is our participation in the celebration. That as we come to this table, we are again recognizing and again made one with Christ and one with each other. This is Jesus' table. And all who profess in him as Lord are welcome to receive. If that's not where you're at today, thank you so much for coming, so much for joining in us on a Sunday again. If For the first time, or the first time in a long time, you are ready to believe. We invite you to participate with us today. And during this Easter tide, along with our profession and our confession of our sins, we're also having a profession of our faith through the Apostles' Creed. So the words will come up on the screen. And as we're talking today, and John is asking in this letter of the first John, Who is Jesus? What is truth? And he's writing all these things about Jesus so that our joy may be complete. I'd love for us to infuse some joy in this Apostles' Creed today. So as we say it, we could just say it as recitation. Yeah, this is true and I, I I know it and I can read well on the screen. We could say it as a declaration. Yes, this is the truth and I think we could also add to it a celebration of joy. So if there's a line or a truth of God that's stated through this Apostles' Creed that resonates and you're going, yes, it is. God, the Father Almighty, it is Jesus, the Son, the Savior, the one who's come. It's the Holy Spirit with us now. And that just doesn't need to just be stated but it needs to be celebrated i want you to do that give out a little whoop even practice right now ready go yeah okay so you're ready let us together state these truths of our faith as expressed in the apostles creed with celebration today so together we believe in god the father almighty creator of heaven and earth we believe in jesus christ and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the holy universal church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, and the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. We do the truth of God, the truth of the person of Jesus. And we say it in a statement and we celebrate it today. Along with our celebration, we have our confession that in all of these truths, we have not lived into them fully. So if you're ready to confess with me, the words will come up on the screen. Let's confess together. Most merciful God, that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name, amen. So beloved, it is my joy to announce good news to you this morning, words that are true not because I say them but because of what God has done. So would you open up your hands and receive again this mercy of God, that Jesus died for us while we were yet sinners and this proves God's love toward us In the name of Jesus Christ, we are forgiven. The peace of the Lord be with you. As those who have been raised to new life with Jesus, would you stand together now and greet those around you and speak that peace, saying, the peace of the Lord be with you to one another.